You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Alex Budak, who is on the faculty of the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. He is also the founder of startsomegood.com, also worked at change.org, and Reach for Change has been involved in kind of social impact initiatives for a long time, and is now teaching a course at UC Berkeley called Become a Changemaker, which is also the name of his book, Become a Changemaker. He also heads up a couple of institutes and centers here at Berkeley. Welcome, Alex. Hey, Greg. Thanks so much for having me. Delighted to be here. You've been teaching this course, which kind of became the basis for this book about becoming a change maker. And it's extremely popular, right? I mean, tons of people want to take this course. I think you had to turn people away for a first time course. There's not a lot of people that are so eager to take it. So this term, this idea really sparked interest, but beyond sort of the vague notion of a change maker making change, what the heck is a change maker? <laughs> I mean, it could mean, you know, a lot of different things. Is this a profession? Is this an occupation? Can somebody put this on their LinkedIn? Like, yeah, change maker since 2007. How do you approach this? I mean, and, and then also like, how did you begin to think in, in terms of kind of defining this aptitude, this role, this occupation, this profession of change maker? Yeah. Thanks, Greg. I think of it as an identity. I think of it as a way that people can identify themselves regardless of what you do. As we look at the world today, I think about how we have so many identities which are exclusive. So either you're an entrepreneur or you're not, you're an impact professional or you're not, an artist or you're not, an engineer or you're not. Uh, and so I like layering on top of this idea of being a change maker. I have a radically inclusive definition of change making. And so there's room for you to be the entrepreneur, the social entrepreneur. There's also room for you to be the program manager that just decides to question the status quo in a, in a small way. The manager who makes sure that she takes care of her team, even when it's hard. There's roles for all of those different types of change makers. And that's really what I set out to teach at Berkeley uh, and the types of people I try to reach in the book. Is this sort of a disposition? We talk about the big five personality traits and there's kind of people who kind of seek out novelty and there's people who kind of avoid novelty. Is this sort of a characteristic or personality propensity? Are there folks who kind of like change and folks who don't like change? And are the folks who don't like change, is, it, is that a bad thing? I mean, is this something that is just uh, an attitude or an attribute or is this something that kind of we all ought to, is it more of like a virtue, right? Something we should all pursue. Yeah. So if you look at the data, there's, of course, the big five, there's openness, which is maybe the trait that most corresponds to being a change maker. And so are you more of an explorer, more of a preserver? So I think there's some aspect of our nature there. Uh, I'm a firm believer that each and every one of us can be change makers and we can be change makers in our own way. So we may often think that, hey, to be an, a change maker, you've got to be the extrovert. You've got to be the one that's like standing in front of a crowd of people and rallying them. And to be sure, there's a role for that. But I think there's also a powerful role for introverts as well, building on some of the work that Susan Cain did, for instance, in, in Quiet, the idea that you can lead in a way that's true to who you are. So in talking about change makers, I want to talk about it in a very inclusive way. Now you hit on like, what does it mean to be a change maker? And that's what I try to explore in, in the book. And so the way I think about it is that there's sort of three key aspects to being a change maker. You've got your mindset. So the mindset is the way you see yourself, see the world and your role to shape the world. It's traits that in my research, I found that all change makers have in common, whether you're working in a traditional corporate setting in a nonprofit setting in the political world. Um, from there, there's change maker leadership. So that's about some of your leadership skills. How do you inspire others towards a vision of change? How do you influence that authority to get them to come on board with you? And then crucially, so of all the things I should be teaching at Haas, probably the last thing I should be teaching is math. So I do not teach math. I don't teach accounting. There's literally only one equation that I teach the entire semester. And so what I call the change maker impact equation. So I say your impact is a change maker. It's the sum of your mindset and your leadership. So those that you're, the way you see the world, the action that you have, uh, the leadership you have, the sum of that multiplied by your action. And so, you know, it doesn't take someone who's a Berkeley uh, math student to know that when you multiply a number by zero, even if it's a really large number, it's still zero. So that equation tells us that it's not enough to just have mindset, not enough to just have the leadership skills. You've got to take action with it. It's change making, not change thinking. Uh, and so the third part of the class, third part of the book is all about kind of how do you go from idea into action? 
And I think change makers do have a bias towards action. So this is about kind of getting in the arena, so to speak, rather than, I mean, academics like to kind of hang back and observe, analyze, interpret, understand, and so forth. And in fact, you know, a lot of the academic curriculum is designed to around understanding, you know, business school, of course, is about doing as much as it is understanding. So in a course like this, how much of it is about understanding and how much of it is about doing, teaching people, not just kind of the theory of doing, but like the action of doing. <laughs> and in your book, I, you, know, you describe some of these exercises that you have people do. I mean, is it important to kind of give somebody some practice or some kind of muscle memory around taking actions? Yeah, crucial, because we run the risk in academia of over-intellectualizing everything. So I could give an inspired two-hour lecture about, let's say, the concept of failure. We could talk about what the research shows about why failure matters, about how to learn from it, how to grow from it, that great scholars have done, look at the literature, what did it say about failure? And you could walk away going like, okay, it seems like it's important to fail. It's such a different thing to viscerally experience failure. So in the classroom, the sort of environment I try to create in the classroom is this idea of being safe, but uncomfortable. There's kind of this magic edge when you think about a classroom where I spend a lot of time creating a feeling of psychological safety that students can be their full selves in class. They can take risks. Uh, but also I want to push them just a little bit outside of their comfort zone as well. You know, not a ton, because if you go too far, then it becomes paralyzing with fear. But just enough, they know that they're safe. They know they can take risks, but then just push them a little bit beyond that. So we go to this idea of failure. So we spent, you know, an hour, hour and a half looking at the literature, talking about failure, doing some case studies. But then I flash up on the screen two words, go, fail. And students sort of giggle nervously. But then on the next slide, they realize, oh, he's actually for real here. So I flash up the next slide. And the next slide says, okay, you have 15 minutes. You have to go leave the classroom and you have to go fail. You have to go get rejected. You can't come back until you've asked for something and someone has said no to you. And I can see my students sort of start to react somatically. So they turn bright red, they're sweating, they're getting kind of nervous. And you can see that, you know, imagine being these really high achieving Berkeley students. In many cases, they've gotten to where they are by doing the right thing, by following the script. And what I'm trying to do here is to challenge them and say, look, I want to push you just a little bit outside of that. I want you to go outside of this classroom and ask for something. And it's going to be scary for sure. For some people, it's terrifying. But I want them to experience what it's like to fail, not just intellectualize failure, but like go viscerally experience it. And so the students sort of shuffle out of the classroom kind of nervously. They usually go in packs because no one wants to go by themselves in this. And then I, of course, stand behind in case anyone has questions. They want a little mentorship, a little coaching. I'm happy to do that. But then they come back 15 minutes later and the energy is just off the charts because they've gone out and they failed and they realize a couple of things. The first thing they realize, of course, is that about a third of the time, students ask for something and they actually get it. They're so sure they're going to be rejected, but the person actually says yes. I think about a guy who, when it was raining outside, uh, asked another guy with an umbrella, said, hey, I forgot my umbrella. My other class is way across campus. Uh, would you walk me there? And the guy, to his complete surprise, says, yeah, sure, I do it. This complete stranger offered to walk 30 minutes out of his way to keep a guy dry. I think about a woman who walked into the school gym and announced, hi, everyone, it's not my birthday, but will you all please sing happy birthday to me? And she got a whole gym of people to sing happy birthday. How often do we set ourselves up for failure because we're scared to ask when we may actually get what we want? And then for the other two thirds of the class, they come back realizing that whatever they asked for really wasn't as scary as it seems. We tend to make failure up to be a bigger thing in our head. But once we actually practice it, we realize that failure isn't fatal. We didn't get laughed at. And often students come back with a new perspective. And so that's why I think the doing is so important that you can't just read a book about failure. You learn so much more by actually doing it. So I want to create those experiences for students where they get to experience that. Well, all those initiatives that you just mentioned, those are when people had to kind of ask something of another person, right? I mean, do you think that those sorts of challenges are more difficult than ones that are less interpersonal. I mean, we've all failed. I mean, you know, it's not that hard. It's, you don't have to really work hard at failing. People do it all the time. I interviewed um, an author earlier about salespeople. And, you know, to be a good salesperson, you have to get comfortable with the idea that the vast majority of time, people are going to hang up on you, they're going to reject you, they're going to say, I'm not interested, you know, they're going to say no, et cetera. And the ones that just kind of keep going and they don't really let it bother them are the ones that ultimately become successful. And of course, anybody who's done athletics, knows that, you know, you lose way more races than you win. And if you're in baseball, you know, you 
strike out way more than you hit home runs, right? So it's kind of surprising. I mean, why would somebody show up at a university at age 18 or 19 and you know, be uncomfortable with failure? I mean, by then they probably failed tens of thousands of times, right? It's just that they don't know that they've failed or it's still uncomfortable or they've been able to convince themselves that their failures were success. Like what, what, how, I mean, do you find it a little puzzling? I mean, of course I feel the same way, but I mean, I'm just wondering like, why is it that people are like that? Yeah. One of the assignments I have students do after this is I have them create a failure resume, something that's been popularized by Tina Seelig at Stanford, among other places. And I think that's a good flipping of the script because of course we've all failed, but so often we want to forget the failures as quickly as we can and not perhaps put enough cognitive energy into understanding what that failure was, why we failed, what we can, can learn from it. There's of course a performative aspect as well to, you know, sure, I had 19 failures on the way to this one success, but let me talk more about the success. I think when we see more and more people talking about success, the 5%, not the 95% of failure, we tend to think, well, I'm the only one that's failing here, right? Everyone else seems to be succeeding. When of course the reality is like any baseball player tells you, um, you know, you're getting out 70% of the time. And I think we just need to, as a culture- Well, better, that's if you're a good, that's if you're a really, really good player. Yeah, if you're a solid player, if you're like me in high school, you're uh, more like 80% of the time. Yeah, you need more <laughs> of the kind of culture that says like, yeah, look, we're all gonna fail and let's find ways to like, not hide it from each other, but to embrace it. Right. I interviewed um, Ido Landau, who's a philosopher, and he said that perfectionism is a problem. And he says that in certain strains of Judaism, they have a, um, I think it's the Hasidic Judaism, they, they have a thing where, you know, strive for mediocrity, right? Mediocrity is great. You know, what it really means is that you can't be perfect. And there's this whole movement called the like good enough mother movement. And I guess those things are just designed to kind of help you feel more comfortable with not being perfect. So, I mean, I'm still kind of a little puzzled by why it is that the interpersonal stuff seems more difficult. In my class, I always talk about the fact that I invested in Lehman Brothers the day before they went bankrupt. <laughs> so I always make sure I have to emphasize that because if I don't keep saying it over and over and over again to other people, then I'm afraid I'm gonna forget and I'm gonna think I'm like this awesome investor. So I always make sure to say it, not just to myself, but to other people. But I think when it comes to kind of interpersonal stuff, we're a little bit more success within an organization or success within our family or within our relationships. You know, those are a little bit more fraught with embarrassment, I think. Oh, for sure. I mean, this is where we go back to the work of Brene Brown around vulnerability. And so one of the stuff that she does I love is that she says that you can't have courage without vulnerability, that they go hand in hand, that we tend to look at vulnerability as something we admire in others, but a weakness in ourselves. And I think if we start seeing vulnerability and courage as being hand in hand, all be much better off. As I think about change-making endeavors, um, you know, we tend to look at people and say like, oh, look how heroic she is. Look how courageous he is. Um, but I think ultimately there's a lot of vulnerability. The idea of like putting yourself out there for believing so strongly in a cause that you're willing to question the status quo. Courage, yes, but also a lot of vulnerability to show up with your full self in terms of saying, this is something that I believe can be changed, it can be better, and I'm gonna be the one that uh, tries to fight that battle. Well, what accounts do you think for the popularity of a course like this? I mean, do you think that young people are frustrated? Do you think that they underestimate their capacity to make a difference? I mean, they've been told all their lives that they're able to make a difference. What accounts for kind of the, I don't know, the lack of confidence that would give them a hunger for the tools that would help them to do this, right? Yeah, that's right. I think the students come in with this raw energy and enthusiasm because they've also been told the narrative, which is that you can change things. But then when they look at the world around them, they see deep systemic issues, deep systemic injustices, where you look at climate or racial justice, like big systemic issues to try to face. And they're not often trained with the skill set they need to go make that change. And so that's where I think the class can come in. So I'm building off of this, I think, latent desire among so many people to have a sense of purpose, to have a sense of meaning, to see the world as it is and believe it can be better in some way and that I can play a role in it. But just like we talked about with failure, with a kind of cognitive intellectualization of like, they could know they could do something. They could know that I can complete change, but how do you actually do it? And so I think I'm able to come in with this class, which takes that raw energy and enthusiasm and sort of equips students with this toolkit. Then they then leave the class feeling like, okay, well, now I know what I can actually do with this. Now I feel like I may be uh, more prepared to go on that journey as a change maker. Well, isn't part of it sort of helping them to understand that they don't have to solve global warming, you know, like right away. I mean, use the term micro leadership, right? You know, you can start maybe with something that's a little bit 
a little bit smaller or you can make a difference on the margin to some extent? Absolutely. I would think back to, I had Sid Espinoza, who's the head of social impact at GitHub. Uh, he came into my class and he um, asked a student, the student asked a question around like, you know, how do you kind of take on these big issues? I think the issue is maybe people experience homelessness. And when he gave his answer, at first sort of the educator of me was like, oh, did he just burst a whole bunch of bubbles? Because what he said is, you're not going to solve these big systemic issues in your lifetime. Probably not. And certainly not by yourself. And so he encouraged the students to not see themselves as a sprinter doing it all by themselves, but rather as someone in a relay race. So thinking about how can I take the baton from those who come before me? How can I learn from what they've done, build upon what they've had? But then crucially, how can I move the baton forward? How can I set those who will come after me up for success? to make sure that not only am I making the world a bit better, leading to positive change, but also I'm there to hand off the baton, to be a mentor, to be a coach, to support them, because um, we're all in this together. And so I think when we shift from like, hey, how could I as an individual stop climate change to instead, what's a role I could play as a network-based leader in terms of moving us collectively forward, changes your perspective, but also makes change feel much more within our reach. Well, you know, people talk about weird, weird society. You know, there's a mindset that's weird that, is not universal, but sometimes you can mistake it for being universal. Well, I think, you know, you're a Silicon Valley native and that's like weird on steroids. I mean, Silicon Valley is an extreme version of things. I mean, this is the only place on the planet where if you ask a five-year-old what they want to do when they grow up, they're going to tell you that they want to be a venture capitalist, yeah. right? So this is the world that you grew up in. And when I was reading through the book, I kept seeing all of these references to all of these different disciplines, all these books and academics. I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah. You know, of course lean. Yeah, of course change mindset, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's almost like, you know, the longer you spend time in this geography, the more this becomes your water, right? It becomes the environment in which you live and you kind of forget that it's kind of very special and, and very unique. And you went outside of Silicon Valley before you kind of came back to I guess Berkeley's kind of North Silicon Valley. I don't know how all of a sudden Berkeley became part of Silicon Valley geographically, but it is. Is it hard to kind of remember or imagine what it's like to face these challenges? I mean, you're a teacher and you know, as a teacher, you always have to kind of go back and remember when the things that you, or even if it's not about remembering, it's about imagining when these concepts were not kind of second nature. And if you don't, then you can't teach them. You can't just teach people how to, you know, how to have their heartbeat, you know, because it's just so second nature. So as a teacher, do you have to continually kind of displace yourself and try to see the world from the perspective of these undergraduates that you have and the MBA students you have in your class? Oh, I think it's so important. And really I lead from a place of empathy, which is trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who's in their last year of undergraduate or their second year of an MBA program and say, you know, what are the lessons I wish I could have known when I was in their shoes? So that's really where I start from. But yeah, in terms of getting out of the Silicon Valley bubble, I think it's so important. I've spent a lot of time, as you sort of referenced, living in other parts of the world, living for a while in Germany and in India. And then most recently, I spent three years living in Scandinavia. And I think you'll see in the book that it's, I mean, it's a very, it's an embodiment of who I am, of my values and my experiences. And so you'll also see a lot of kind of Scandinavian values come out in the book also. Um, and so as I was starting my work in Scandinavia, where I was running an incubator for social entrepreneurs, I tried to go in with a lot of humility, with kind of cultural awareness which is that there are a lot of people who would look to me and go like, oh, this guy's from Silicon Valley. He knows how entrepreneurs work. He knows how Silicon Valley ecosystems work. Let's just listen to him. But every place has so much to give and to offer. And so I, I came with a lot of humility to also make sure that I sort of showed up in a way that was respectful of the Swedish culture, because there's also so much that we could learn from them. And I think that in so many ways, they're opposite cultures that kind of complement each other quite well. And that's where I hope that sort of pressure testing some of these ideas in very different contexts. Sweden, for instance, which is so focused on egalitarianism, on not standing out from the crowd, on humility, collective decision making, a really nice counterpoint to some of the Silicon Valley values as well. But as I go back to like being in front of the classroom, one of the concepts I like to teach my students is to be the ex you wish you had, be the parent you wish you had, be the teacher you wish you had, be the mentor, be the friend you wish you had. And so in many ways, I try to be the teacher that I wish that I had. So growing up in Silicon Valley, part of the dark side of growing up there is hyper competitive schools, just so ridiculously competitive, uh, so much so that I really didn't do that well in, in high school. I did okay, but certainly not that well. And as I look back on some of the lessons, 
I never had psychological safety when I was in the, the classroom. They didn't reward sort of someone like me who thought differently or wanted to see connections across disciplines. If I wasn't someone that would just wrote and memorize all of these things, I didn't do well in the classroom. And so as I realized, well, hey, this didn't work for me, that's a type of teaching that I try to bring into the classroom as well. So of course, inspired by Silicon Valley, of course, inspired by Scandinavia, by India, by other places I've been, uh, but also coming with this idea of trying to be the teacher that I wish that I had had. Well, you know, I've talked to, um, you know, our colleague, Rich Lyons, who's also deeply involved in this kind of change maker initiative at Berkeley. And, you know, in these conversations, the idea is like, what if this whole idea of being a change maker instead of being a class, right, became almost like a, like a brand, right? You know, that you could imagine that a, an entire university had as a kind of part of its core curriculum, this idea around becoming a change maker, right? So, you know, there used to be, everyone had to come in and learn Latin, right? <laughs> you know, when I was at Duke, everybody had to take a class on kind of persuasion and rhetoric, right? No matter what discipline you were in, you had to learn rhetoric. Now we don't have a whole lot of common core curriculum everywhere. I think there was some discussion about making data science mandatory for everybody at Berkeley, including the poetry majors and so forth. It seems like something like this. Do you think that this is sufficiently, I mean, is this inclusive and democratic enough that would make sense for everybody to kind of learn how to become a change maker, make a difference? Is it valuable for everybody? I certainly believe so. And I'm grateful to be working with Rich Lyons, Laura Hasner, and a, and a great team uh, focusing on how we can kind of make it more systemic at Berkeley as, as one example of a university leading the way. Uh, but yeah, that, that's my belief is that you, when you look at certain subjects, you might say, well, data science is all the rage right now, but who knows, maybe in 50 years, that type of thing shifts. Um, change making, I think, because it's such a personal development, professional development and way of seeing the world. I think it's quite valuable. And part of what I've been very passionate from the beginning of teaching the class is that, of course, I'm at the Haas School of Business, but welcoming students from all around campus and really feeling like we're better off when we're together and working across disciplines. So I have students work on a change maker project as part of the class. And I love when teams are working across disciplines. So there's an engineer working alongside an English major, alongside a business major. Um, and there's some really cool magic that comes as a result. Now, if you were to ask them, like, do they see themselves as a change maker? For sure, when they finish a the class, I would believe that they, that they do. But the way that they will manifest themselves in their change maker work will be quite different. So the literary major might see their change through the written word, through challenging the status quo on the publishing industry or the way we think about prose. The engineer might say, hey, I'm gonna go work for a big traditional tech company, but I'm gonna be a bit of an intrapreneur. Right? I'm gonna try to change things. I'm gonna do hackathons and I'm gonna push envelope on a new, a new uh, program or a new product. Um, and then the business major you know, might become an entrepreneur, might become who knows what they'll end up doing. So there's roles for all of us to be change makers in its uh, own unique way. And I hope that's one of the themes. The tagline of the book is an actionable and inclusive guide. And those two things are very important to me, actionable, that people feel like they can do something with it, but also inclusive, that everyone can see a bit of themselves in there. Well, you left out one word, which is positive, positive change, right? So I think what you're advocating is becoming a change maker for good, right? I mean, look, you could have a course that was about how do you become more effective, right? So, you know, we have these courses, like how do you become a more effective leader, right? Like how do you make a bigger impact? But, you know, tell the Hun, change maker, Genghis Khan, change maker, Mao Tung, you know, change maker. These folks made a lot of changes. Do you think if you're motivated by good, do you think that you take less seriously the importance of kind of understanding how to make things happen, right? I mean, I actually hosted somebody for a panel just yesterday and they quoted Learned Hand and I haven't been able to find this quote, but the quote was, you know, it's not enough to have a good heart if you have an empty mind. And I think the, the point was, <laughs> you know, if the people with good motivations don't have the tools of becoming a change maker and only the kind of folks with bad intentions do, then, you know, the good will get crushed. So when you're teaching the class, are you teaching people primarily kind of how to make a difference? How do you separate that from kind of having good goals or good intentions? Do you think you're only attracting the people who kind of want to make the world a better place or interested in these in kind of social impact, right? Are you going to scare away people who are like, yeah, I want to go and take over all these companies and squeeze out all the inefficiencies and stuff like that? 
I'm very cognizant that again, my bias is I come in as a social entrepreneur. And so that comes naturally to me, but that's not to, to everyone. And so in my teaching, I try to be radically inclusive and meet people where they are. So there's a role for change makers in kind of social good initiatives, but also in digital transformations or to help push companies forward. COVID has shown us, for instance, that the status quo just isn't tenable anymore. And so we need people that are willing to shake things up, even if it's just to make things remain sustainable, to keep the company, keep the lights on. There's a role for that as well. Now, as I think about change, it's a bit like technology. So I see technology is itself a value neutral platform. Technology can be used for good and for bad. Change as well can be used for good and for bad. And so what I try to do is, especially in the change maker action section of the book, to sort of layer on top lenses that help students understand the world. So perhaps we'll look at the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, as a bit of inspiration for say, well, how might we use these change maker skills towards that end? Maybe it's ESG goals. Again, I'm throwing out a lot of acronyms here, uh, environmental sustainable governance. Um, maybe it's CSR, uh, maybe it's diversity, equity, inclusion, maybe it's justice. There's these different lenses we can then apply to it. So if you learn the mindset, learn the leadership, and then I do try to equip students with some of those lenses, I don't force them on anyone because maybe you'll feel more compelled to focus on justice. Others will feel more compelled to work on SDGs. There's room for all of that, but use that as a lens to help them see and understand the world. Well, it's interesting. I mean, people who have a desire to impact the world in a positive way, right, do some kind of social impact, I think they're much more likely to go to a business school now than they might have been, say, 30 years ago, right? I mean, I think, you know, if you had that kind of motivation, you would have been attracted to a public policy school, maybe, you know, a law school. And now I think your default choice is, is a business school, did you think when you were younger that you were going to be in a business school? You're a pretty young guy, so maybe you already had, you know, an understanding that business school was kind of the place to be. But I mean, is that a good thing or a bad thing that that kind of business school is, you know, where all the action is, so to speak? You're exactly right. So I did my graduate work in public policy because I saw that as the sort of degree for change makers at that time. Uh, what I found were some incredible colleagues. Some of the best people I've ever met were my grad school colleagues. But a lot of them wanted to go create change in very formal hierarchical organizations. A lot of them now are working in Department of Justice, Department of Labor, UN, World Bank. There's a role for that, to be sure. But I think as I got to public policy school, I realized, okay, maybe I'm a little too entrepreneurial to fit into the public policy lens. And so I think it's actually a healthy thing, generally, that people are shifting towards business schools. I think there's a great opportunity and what an amazing lens for creating change, the world of business. We're seeing more and more of a burden or an opportunity placed on the CEOs of companies. We see that there's a chance for them to step up and lead positive change, not just governments, not just NGOs. So there's an opportunity there. Uh, but I was recently speaking with a guy named Stuart Hart, who helped to catalyze the sustainable MBA at the University of Vermont, which is really rethinking the entire MBA model. and. Speaking with him was super inspiring because what he was saying is that there's a real opportunity to rethink the whole business model of graduate business education. So he shifted the school from two years to one year. It's a focus on sustainability, uh, focus on applied learning, but every aspect of the school is a bit different. So their career services looks quite different because they're not focused on trying to get people into the quote, prestigious jobs most business schools are. They're trying to get people placed to in environmental sustainability jobs. So inspired by his story, not that every school should become University of Vermont, they can't, nor should they. But that's a good example, I think, of where innovation can happen at business schools and really transform both the business school education, but then as a result, our future business leaders as well. Now, you spend some time in the book going through these defining principles, which at the business school at Berkeley, everybody kind of knows them. And it's a, it's a thing now for organizations to have defining principles or mission statements and so forth. These things were cooked up before you arrived, but it seems like you, you took to them like a fish to water. So I was, I was wondering, what is the role of things like that defining principles in, in helping you to organize your thoughts around what you want the education to look like or how you can build a community with your students? I remember I was part of the process where the defining principles were cooked up and they certainly resonated with me. And this one question, the status quo, all of these things, these four defining principles, they're subject to a wide range of interpretation, but I think they can also be kind of misinterpreted. So with question, the status quo, oftentimes there's an easy way to do it, which is to kind of question all those status quo things out there. The hard part is to kind of question the status quo stuff in here. How do you use things like that as sort of a starting point for conversations in the classroom? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned, you know, did I see myself going to a business school? And I think a big reason that I got compelled to come to Haas to accept a job is that in my very first interview, they asked me, which of the defining principles stands out to me and why? Because it's one thing to have these. Did you do your homework? Did you get the, did you know that the secret handshake was you needed to know I, these I did, things? and I got to expand upon beyond yourself as being my favorite one, as I talked about sort of my approach to servant leadership. And I felt that was a really strong uh, signaling effect for what the school was about. Values are only as good as people that actually live them. And so it's not enough to just have them on paper, not enough to even have them etched in the courtyard as we do at Haas. It's about how you start to embody them. And so as I thought about kind of creating this curriculum, I tied the change maker mindset pretty closely to the defining leadership principles, because I think they're also a great proxy for what it means to show up as, as a change maker. Now, in terms of how we actually teach those in the classroom, I have many Haas students, not all. And so we start in week number two, doing the case study actually of how the uh, defining leadership principles came to be at Haas. And then we have Rich Lyons, the dean at the time, come in as a guest speaker. Part of the reason I do that is it's a great case study in leading change when change is hard. Many people were excited about the defining leadership principles. Uh, many were not. And so it's a great case about how you can bring everyone along on the journey, uh, including those who may be the initial detractors. Um, so we actually lean into it as a case to say, well, how do you actually lead change when it's hard? How do you catalyze change through culture? And what can we learn from that case study? And as we do, the positive externality is students are introduced to these uh, defining principles as well. But then, I mean, to your point, there's also room to be a bit flexible with how we uh, interpret them. And so, for instance, when I think about questioning the status quo, the way I interpret it for the class, we talk about things like curiosity. So kind of how do you identify status quo is worth questioning? We talk about uh, failure because we talk about, well, if you're going to be questioning status quo, you're going to be going up against the status quo bias. You're going to take some smart risks. How do you go about doing that? Then also bring in the concept of resilience as well. So saying you're going to be failing. You're going to go up against entrenched powers. How can you stay strong for the long haul? So when I think about questioning the status quo, I see it as both like a mindset shift of like identifying opportunities for change, then the act of going up against, especially uh, power imbalances to lead change, but then taking care of yourself to make sure that you are able to overcome the setbacks, which are inevitable in questioning the status quo. Now, if someone else were to teach question the status quo, they might use slightly different terms or slightly different approaches. Uh, I think that term has enough room for all of us, but that's at least how I think about it in my teaching. And how important is it, do you think, for students like this to be familiar with all of the research that lies behind the principles you, you teach in your class, right? I mean, is there a balance between kind of the curricular and the co-curricular, between kind of the academic piece and the more practical piece. How do you balance that in the classroom? Yeah. So it's kind of building the syllabus. I thought about it being like kind of a candle you weave together. So kind of two strands all coming together in one place. So I start with some of my own lived experience, some of what I've experienced as a change maker, coaching, advising, supporting change makers, uh, but then bolstering everything with research as well. So it's not, a just, not enough for me to just stand in the front of the room and say, hey, humility is really important. Um, I also want to back it up with the data that show that it is. Uh, what I found is that when I started teaching undergrads, um, they just kind of accepted whatever I said. So I said, hey, humility is important. They would go with it. But then I remember my very first semester teaching uh, MBA students, they were like, show me the data. So fortunately I had done the research. So everything I was teaching was based on data, but I learned to get a little bit more proactive about showing, hey, this is where this comes from. This is some of the research studies. Now I've also found that realistically, business students don't want to go read those research papers that I'm reading. They just want the takeaways. So what I try to do when I teach principles is to show them, okay, look, this is the study. This is kind of the high level. This is what they did. Um, this is the finding. But then crucially, I always have a bullet point, key takeaway for change makers. What's the sort of one sentence thing? Like, what are you gonna do with this as a result? I do that to make sure students know that it's grounded in empirical research and data and studies, but then also trying to do the work for them, which is to say, like, this is what you actually do with it. This is how you'll implement it into your own work. And I feel like that's kind of the best of both worlds. Uh, we run the risk of being completely action oriented where we're dissociated from the research and what actually works. Uh, but then we also run the risk of being ivory tower where we just read research papers and don't know, well, how does Uber, how does Facebook, how does DoorDash, how do they actually implement that on a daily basis? And that's where I hope I can sort of find that middle ground. So, you know, I teach a course on venture capital and, and I like to say that venture capitalists are like educators in a way, advisors, and same thing with accelerators, incubators. If they're worthwhile, then they're going to provide some kind of educational function to the founders. Having worked in that space for a while, right, helping these social ventures to get off the ground, I mean, do you see parallels between the role of 
accelerators and incubators and that of universities? I mean, should we think of universities as kind of career accelerators or individual accelerators, you know, where we're, we're incubating these individuals and helping them to, you know, learn to succeed in their endeavors. I mean, what's the relationship there? Do you see these kind of bleeding together? But I see a couple parallels. And the first one I see is one of the potential dangers, which is that sometimes accelerators, incubators are seen as a proxy for social proof that you want to get into Stanford, just so you can say that you're at Stanford, just so that you can drop out of Stanford and be the Stanford dropout. Um, similarly, People often look to something like Y Combinator more for the stamp of approval to say, hey, I'm a YC grad than necessarily what's inside of there. And so I think at both universities and accelerators, we run the risk that our greatest value proposition is the brand. And I think we need to make sure that there's content behind it that's, that's backing it up. And I think in both cases, the best accelerators, the best universities will focus not just on the sort of short-term gains. So in an accelerator, think about like making sure that company goes and gets its Series A, Series B funding, goes IPO. Uh, in the student's case, that they get the fancy job right out of undergrad. They're investing in the individual for the long-term. Um, I had the privilege of getting a, a fellowship kind of early on in my social entrepreneurship um, experience. And what was so special about it is that they they picked me because of start some good because of the company. But it became very clear that they were investing in me for the long haul, that when the time came for me to perhaps transition away from start some good, I was scared. I was scared about leaving my baby behind. And I was scared that they would be disappointed in me because they invest in the company. But they made it really clear. They're investing in me as a person. They're investing in me as a change maker for the next 50, 60, 70 years. And that's what I hope universities can do as well, is to think about you will be with us for two years in business school, maybe four years for undergrad, but how are we investing you in the long term? Not just you as the 23-year-old alumni, 28-year-old MBA alumni, but like 50 years from now, creating that long-term association. I think that's where the greatest opportunity for both accelerators and universities lies. I think a lot of students think that when they graduate, they're going to be much more able to make a change if they create their own startup, right? Or at least work at a kind of early startup. And I think the belief, and I think there's some merit to this, is that if you go and work for a large organization, particularly kind of an older large organization, it's going to be much more difficult to make an impact, right? There's going to be some sclerosis. There's going to be all these processes. There's going to be all this politics and so forth. And I think a university, particularly a public university, exhibits a lot of those features, right? I mean, it's really hard to get things done. I mean, you got a lot of bureaucracy, you got a lot of politics, and yet you've managed to kind of straddle this world both kind of as an administrator and a teacher, you know, making things happen. Are these large organizations kind of doomed to fail, right? How do you navigate these large-scale organizations that are 150 years old and have all sorts of barnacles on them and all sorts of procedures that are ossified and so forth? I mean, as a change maker yourself, right? So not just teaching it, but actually kind of doing it on the ground. What Are you teaching the stuff that you have learned by doing? Or are you in the process of putting this course together, learning things that you can send back to your day job? Yeah, and it's a wonderful kind of symbiotic relationship between teaching and learning, change making and putting it into practice. And in terms of how do we make sure these entities live on? Well, we need to fill academia and fill these institutions, these bureaucracies with change makers. Now, it's not realistic to think that every single person will become a change maker in big bureaucracies, but can we make it safe for others to follow us? That's one of the big lessons I've learned in terms of getting change done is that there is all too much fear about questioning the status quo. And there's a lot of fear about shaking things up. Uh, bureaucracy can be a wonderful thing to fall back on to not have to worry about personal agency. Um, so one of the things I've learned to do is if I need to kind of bring someone along on a change effort within Berkeley and they're sort of reticent um, to do something like this, how can I make it safe for them? So something like, hey, I know this is a big risk for you. If you come along with me, I promise that if it works, I will make sure you get the praise for having done so. If it doesn't work out, I'll make sure that I take the blame. Are there ways that we can make it safe for other people to, to follow us? And uh, I think that's one of the steps we can take towards, towards getting there. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, aren't there people who are like, I don't know, naysayers or, you know, stumbling blocks? I mean, I don't want to get in trouble here. You don't need to name any names, but I mean, how, how do you... You know, there's always people that are like, no, 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 that's 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 not going to fly. And you're stepping on my turf or um, I don't see how this is going to benefit me. I mean, do you have to necessarily have some political skills? I mean, is that something you teach? I mean, do you teach folks how to navigate the political thickets 
that they're going to run into in order to get stuff done? I think I'm, I'm not a political player. I remember in my previous job, I had a 360 degree review. And most of the feedback was pretty strong, except for my ability to play politics, because I just have no interest in politics. That was like my weakest scoring thing. So I'm not a political person. So I don't really think that way so much, but I'm inspired by the work of a change management firm called Nobel, N-O-B-L. And they identified the three types of people you meet while leading change. So say there's the champions, there's the fence sitters, and there's the cynics. So the champions, you want to engage them, um, trust them, let them run with things, get them going. Fence-sitters, come back to them. You can waste a lot of energy there. But then there's the cynics. And what really changed my perspective on the cynics is they said, we should think of cynics as disappointed idealists. So these are people that maybe desperately want to believe that change is possible, but they've been here for 20, 30 years. They've seen change efforts fail and they no longer believe in it. It's changed my perspective to look at someone who's sort of feeling like they're a roadblock and instead saying, well, hey, a lot of people that work, especially a place like Berkeley, a public institution, they probably got into it because they want to be part of something bigger than themselves. But over time, culture or whatever else has sort of calcified them into this role. And so when I approached them as a disappointed idealist, it changed my perspective on how to engage with them a little bit. It reminds me a bit of when I was uh, leading Start Some Good and I would get all these emails from disappointed customers. And this is in the, the early days where we had only a part-time tech team. And I was honestly shocked by how someone could be so upset about this like small little startup, three guys that like didn't have this feature, which seemed really complex to build. And they were like devastated. Like they seemed legitimately upset that we didn't have this feature. At first I tried to be all defensive and be like, yo, do you realize like I'm working on this from like 7 p.m. until midnight, like I'm coming some slack. But what I realized is that they really believed in what we were doing. They wanted us to succeed. It came out in a way which sounded really critical, but they're actually disappointed idealists. They saw the potential in us and they wanted this feature. And so once I started, stopped being defensive and instead found ways to engage them. So maybe that meant as soon as we ship the feature to send them a note, thank them for their feedback, ask them to help us test it. Then more and more of them became enrolled. And so we actually shifted some of our greatest cynics, our greatest critics into some of our greatest champions as a result. Yeah, and I think you mentioned also these trust-inducing habits. How do you get your students in class to kind of start working on those? Yeah, so there's a couple of different levels of trust. So there's trust in oneself, and there's also trust in others. So when it comes to trust in oneself, of course, many students face feelings of imposter syndrome, things that's especially prevalent in uh, big institutions, places like Berkeley, places where there's low acceptance rates and, and so on. And so to work with them to first identify that most of us, if not all of us, feel feelings of imposter syndrome. So not beat ourselves up when we feel that. But also to start with small little habits, small little trust building things that you can do, getting small wins. Uh, I joke about how the co-founder of Start Some Good, uh, Tom, um, whenever he would make a to-do list, at the top of the to-do list, he would place write to-do list. That way when he started the to-do list, he would wait. I do that yeah, also. Yeah, the little long school of to-do list. <laughs> you check it off, you're like, cool, I've got some momentum. I've done one thing. But then also, how do you learn to trust others as well? When you think about students who are in a place like Berkeley, they've often gotten where they are by being an outstanding individual contributor. They're great at taking standardized tests. They know what's on the syllabus, they deliver. But I try to shift them from being someone who does their best work by themselves to doing their best work through and with others. And so I try to help them find ways they can be comfortable delegating and trusting in others. Sometimes that means being really clear on the what, but flexible on the how. Uh, so in other words, saying like, these are the minimum requirements. We're planning an event. We've got to make sure that there's four speakers. They come from three different industries and we have 50 people in attendance, but then there's room for them to delegate and say, hey, look, I don't care how you get those 50 people. I don't care if our event is outside or inside, but you get clear on what it is that you really care about. And then you can do a bit of the sort of trust, but verify. You're not going all into trusting everyone all the time blindly, but rather giving a bit of trust. It's kind of a symbiotic relationship where you give a little trust, get a little trust in return. Uh, and then it begins to build. Yeah, I mean, I think there's the problem that a lot of students have where they don't think they can be effective. But I think there's also kind of a corresponding problem where they overestimate the degree to which they're effective. In other words, they don't hold themselves truly accountable. You know, they have good intentions, but they, uh, they're they letting themselves off the hook maybe a little bit too easily. How do you balance that, right? Because you obviously don't want to discourage people and make them feel inadequate in some way, but how do you encourage people to really hold themselves uh, accountable and kind of be honest with themselves, right? You know, have that kind of intellectual humility that enables them to kind of see themselves in, in clear light. Yeah. So a big part of the class is doing their reflection papers. 
And occasionally students are frustrated with the assignment because when it comes to building that self-awareness, especially self-awareness through writing, it's not easy to create a rubric. It's, you can create a rubric on uh, an accounting test or something like that where you can say it's either right or wrong. Here, I'm not asking for regurgitation of material. I'm actually asking for something which is harder than that. It's one thing to just um, say, well, what's the definition of a growth mindset? And you could kind of memorize that. But instead, mm -hmm. what I'm asking students to do. Yeah. Multiple choice quests. You could do multiple yeah. choice. <laughs> I want them to go deeper though. I want them to say, how do I show up with a growth mindset? What are some of the factors that allow me to be more growth focused? What am I more fixed? What are some of the habits that I have that lead to a growth mindset? Do I tend to have it more in academics, less so in sports? What can I learn from others? And that's where there's no easy answers. And honestly, each paper will be completely different depending on the student, depending on where they're coming from, what their goals are. But that's why I'm a big believer in these reflection papers, which um, again, it's much harder to do than just spouting off the definitions because in order to deeply reflect on something like the growth mindset, you can't possibly reflect on it and how you show up with it unless you deeply understand the concept itself. So I'm asking you to go a step further. You've got to know the concept in order to analyze, but then go analyze yourself and try to understand what are some of your patterns and where are your areas for growth and development. Now you came with this idea of the change maker canvas. And we all know about the business model canvas and we know that that's, that's been a big hit and you know, uh, every business school prints these things out and hands them out to their students and, you know, in a business model class or design thinking class, do you think that some kind of change maker canvas or, or some kind of standardized set of exercises, you know, could become popular, or could it diffuse through, you know, university curriculum in some way? Oh, I mean, I, I certainly hope so, but I don't come from a place of that as the goal. I come from a place of trying to solve a problem I'm seeing in my students, which is that so often they get really inspired to create change and they get completely paralyzed with knowing how to take those first steps. And that's what I tried to address with the change maker canvas. There's a beauty in being able to both see the big picture, so sort of articulate the vision of change, but then also understand some of those small details, which is like, who are the evangelists we have to get involved? Those are people that won't be active day to day, but like you need their approval in order to get things going. And so it helps to go through almost like a thought experiment to like get their ideas down on paper. What I find by doing this and the kind of inspired by the business model canvas, we're looking for not paragraphs, paragraphs. I remember that in my entire time as an entrepreneur, I only wrote one business plan and that was just to enter a business plan competition. I'd never used a business plan because it's completely out of date by the time you're done. So I focus not on writing a lot of words, but on the essential words. And then what I find with the Change Maker Canvas is that students feel really empowered when they have this down. They take a lot of the thoughts that are swirling in their head, a lot of the self-doubt, and they put it down into this canvas. And once they do, they realize, okay, it still feels really overwhelming to try to address climate change, but at least I've identified one way I can start leading some change in my community in this way, and I know that first step. And so that's why I created it it's for students like them. Um, if others take it on, I hope that they will. But really, it's just trying to solve that problem of um, how do I understand, make sense of the change I want to lead and then start taking action on it. Now, you know, a lot of people talk about work-life balance. And I think a lot of people think of work and life as being kind of separate spheres and that they leave their work at work when they get home. And I think some people think of that as a good thing. Others talk about work-life integration where they say, okay, it's all kind of one thing. And, you know, you apply the same principles across both domains. And they think that keeping them separate is sort of a bad thing. I think I kind of know the answer. I think you're a little bit like me where you see your work as being completely consistent with your life, right? You don't see this kind of stark divide where, okay, I'm going to be teaching change-making by day and then I'm going to, you know, settle into complacency by night. Like, how do you, uh, how do you view that, right? How do you think in terms of work-life balance? Do you see yourself as a change-maker kind of, 24 seven, you know, how do you integrate being a father and having a life that, that is outside of university and outside of social venture? Yeah, I see it as a wonderful flywheel. I mean, you'd have to ask my wife if she agrees, if she likes the fact of a 24 seven change maker or, or not, or maybe she wants to, <laughs> right? to stop making change. It's like, maker. stop making change. Look, <laughs> just, you know, leave the garbage can where it is, right? You know, stop moving it around every day. <laughs> I can't find it. Exactly. But at least how I think about things is that these things are completely intertwined. And so I think that the better parent I am to my toddler son, the better teacher that I am, the better teacher I am, the better support I am to, to him. Um, there's also opportunities to integrate the same lessons that we learn in kind of a professional context to our personal life as well. 
I remember when Rebecca, my wife and I first got engaged, we we're trying to plan our wedding. And, you know, you could think of it like a, a business in some ways. We started jumping right into like, well, what are the wedding collections? The what? chart. The chart, yeah. <laughs> so much to do. We would just jump straight into it. But one of the lessons I've learned in change making is to like really take time to align on the values, like understand like how are we actually going to approach this thing? What do we, what do we want this to accomplish? It's not just a wedding for the sake of a wedding, but like, what, what are we doing here? And so I remember taking the time away to sort of work together on this and much to the, I don't know, amusement maybe of my parents and my future in-laws, uh, we put together a vision statement and a set of values for our wedding. Now, some might laugh at us and be like, oh, that's, that's silly, that's, that's ridiculous. But it really made us feel like we could then create the event that felt true to who we were. So we're being a bit of change makers in both the process, but I think also the outcome. So if it's something that works in uh, a business or change context, maybe there's also ways to apply that to the personal life. And that's something I try to do, certainly. So do you have defining principles for your household? Not for the household, but we do have for our kid, for in terms of like the, the type of child we want to want to raise. Yeah. So you're very intentional about that. Yeah, specifically. Yeah. So, I mean, perhaps if parenting was inspired by the ideas in this book, then by the time they got to university and they signed up for a class like this, they could essentially, right, you know, teach it alongside of you, right? Do you think that the things that you're teaching in this class are, are things that perhaps should be taught outside of the university? I mean, in their family life or outside, in organizations? I mean, in, in a way, I feel like some of these things, if the university's teaching them, and university needs to teach them, then, then in a way, the rest of the world has kind of kind of failed people because it's led them to a place where they kind of need to be, be reminded of this stuff, right? I mean, shouldn't this stuff be just part of the culture in which we live, part of the air that we breathe to some degree? Yeah, you're preaching to the choir here, Greg. But yeah, as we think about, I'm you know, very inspired by the work of Donella Meadows, who's a great systems thinker. And she talks about leverage points to intervene in the system. And so I'm sort of saying, well, look, I'm at Berkeley, so I can at least sort of change the system, change the way people think, change the way people lead while they're here with us at age 22 or 28 or 40. But there's even greater leverage if you can get to them younger, get to them in other places. And that's really the goal with the book. Um, you know, I'm super grateful to have this amazing home at Berkeley. I'm deeply gratified that it seems to be really resonating with students. But these lessons, I'm excited to get them out to more people, people that aren't university students, people aren't, uh, that are pre-university, people that didn't attend university, people that are um, looking for these lessons no matter where they are. And so I guess to the listeners, watchers of this, this podcast and those that end up reading the book, you have to let me know, you know, do you find ways you can apply these lessons? Because uh, I, I would love to hear that. But certainly from a systems lens, I hope that these lessons this approach, this identity um, can not be confined just to a university, but can be something that we all can embrace. So are you going to set your children out into the world and have them ask for things until they, until they get a no? <laughs> yeah, a little, a little. At mini what age, at what age are you going to do that exercise? That's so funny. I, yeah, I can't wait. Poor, poor kid that will have to have to survive the dad teacher. But yeah, I think there'll be some changing lessons that are embedded into to how we, we raise them for sure. Well, Alex, it's been great chatting. Hopefully we can chat again. There's so much more to the book. We barely scratched the surface. Definitely check it out. Becoming a change maker. Let's chat again soon. Thanks so much, Greg. Great conversation. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.